Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. Again. I titled today's drosh, Jacob's Journey, and it's just a snippet of the story, and I'll warn each of you, I'm approaching it assuming that the majority of you read your Bibles and you're already familiar with the highlights, at least, of Jacob's life. Because there is a lot there. Jacob takes up about half of the book of Genesis. There is an enormous amount there. I came across a series that was done on Jacob's deception. It's over 15 hours long. So there's a lot to that. And on the topic of Jacob's deception, why is it that Jacob is called in Ishemet, a man of truth. When we think of Jacob and how he got not just the birthright from his brother Esav, Esau, but also how he got his father's blessing, it was not exactly through honest means. So how do we teach this story to our kids? And it raises a lot of questions, not just with Jacob, but also with his mother, Rivka, Rebecca. Was she justified in how she went about what she did? She was given a prophecy, but she didn't seem to share it. And when it came time, she counseled her son to deceive her own husband. So how do we go about that? And why is, again, why is Yaakov, Jacob, called an Ishemet? Because as you follow through his life, he seems to have a number of stumbles, but he ultimately becomes very blessed, has numerous, numerous sons, and we are effectively in his namesake. All of us, both Jew and Gentile are part of Israel, Israel, which is the name he was also given later. So how do we deal with that? And in Psalm 1, it was a curious passage that kept coming to mind as I'm reading all these things about, about Jacob. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the, stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The Bible talks a lot about prosperity. Now, we're not talking about the more modern concept of a a prosperity gospel. That's a lie. It's the name it, claim it, or as I like to call it, the blab it and grab it. That is absolutely not what the Bible teaches, and it's kind of a three-year-old way of approaching things, and I say that because I have a three-year-old, and if she sees something, I want it, it's mine. It's it's daddy's car, dear, you don't get it. So Yaakov was given the name Israel later, but names have meanings. We forget that in English because often our We name without really thinking about it. The name sounds nice or it sounds interesting. But especially in the Torah, names have meanings. So the main players here we're talking about, we have Yaakov, Jacob, and Esau. Esau. So Yaakov comes from the root of meaning heel or heel holder, supplanter, or crooked. And Esau means hairy. They did not come out of the womb looking the same. Now, I'll propose to you that Rivka, Rebecca, was not a fan of the name Yaakov. And here's why. It says in Genesis 25, they named him Esav. Baikru Shmo Esav. But it doesn't say that for Yaakov. Baikra Shmo Yaakov. And he named him Yaakov, or he named him Jacob. It's not they. I'll submit to you that Rebecca was not a fan of the name Yaakov. She was fine with one of her sons being called Harry, or he came out rough. But she did not like one of her sons being named Crooked. And what mother would? But parents will often disagree on names. When my wife was pregnant with our first child, I jokingly said, we need a really strong name, and we knew it was a boy. And so I said, all right, 
what are some what are some name possibilities? It used to be a, a good strong name, and we started throwing out ideas. And I jokingly said, "What name could possibly be stronger than Maccabee Maximus?" And we jokingly had a back and forth, and she said, "Okay, fine. We name our son Maccabee Maximus. Then all the girls, I'm going to name after desserts. This is Galida. This is Ugia. In Hebrew, that's ice cream and cookie." So we, we settled for the name of our son being, as most of you know, Gabriel, Gavriel, strong man of God. It's a great name, and we did not name our daughters after desserts. There's a lot to a name. So Rivka probably didn't want one of her sons being named Crooked. And there's a lot to be said on Jacob's life, but that name seemed to follow him in some of his character. And again, Half of Genesis talks about Jacob. I'm going to propose to you an idea that in the Torah, because it's not just a law book, although it does contain a lot of laws, and it's not a storybook because it has a lot of laws along with the stories. Each command in the Torah has a corresponding story, usually in Genesis or in early Exodus, as an explanation to why that commandment later exists. For example, when we're given the command Shabbat, we're told that's because Hashem created heaven and earth in six days and the seventh he rested. We're given the rationale as to why we have Shabbat. An example from Jacob's life, in Vaikra, in Leviticus 18.18, it says, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a second wife while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. The Torah prohibits taking your wife's sister as another wife and a common rationale the rabbis discuss and is pretty easily explained and understood is that the rivalry that would create between sisters is not something God wants. And while God never forbids multiple wives, he never exactly condones it either. Case in point, show me one time in the entire Bible that went well for someone but he expressly forbids taking women to women who are sisters as wives because that ruined Rachel and Leah's relationship. So we have the story in Genesis, and the law we're given later is essentially explained in the story. There are three specific mitzvot in the entire Torah that promise long life. Now, the promise of long life is given generically a number of times. Do all of these words, keep the words of this law that your days may be long and it will go well with you in the land that I'm giving you. But there are only three commandments that are specifically attached to long life. And Yaakov lived a long life. I don't think that's happenstance or random. He lived to be 147. When he came before Pharaoh at 130, What's the first thing Pharaoh said to him? You look old. How old are you? How many years have you lived? That's an interesting thing to say to someone when you meet them. How old are you? So Jacob most likely at that time, he looked 130. He had some city miles on him. I don't think it's random that he lived to an old age, especially if that that name, Yaakov, crooked, supplanter, held true for his entire life. So those laws that promise long life. The first one, most of you know, because it's, it's mentioned in the Brahadashah, and the apostles mention it as the first command with a promise, honor your father and your mother in order that your days may be lengthened on the land the Lord your God is giving you. The second, you shall not keep in your pouch two different weights. One large, one small. You should not keep in your house two different ifa measures, one large and one small. Rather, you shall have a full and honest weight and a full and honest ifa measure in order that your days will be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And the third, if a bird's nest chances before you on the road, on any tree or on the ground, and it contains uh, eggs, essentially, if the mother is sitting upon them, you shall not take the mother upon the young. You shall take away the mother, and then you may take the young for yourself in order that it should be good for you, and you should lengthen your days. 
These are the three commandments. Honor your father and your mother, honest weights and measures, and the law of the mother bird. Do these have anything in common at all? Someone said probably. You're probably right. At face value, these are very random commandments to attach long life to. Honor your father and your mother is one of the weightiest mitzvot in the entire Torah. And Yeshua criticizes the Pharisees for ignoring it, saying about how you'll, you'll tithe off of your, your mints and your dill and things. You're tithing off stuff you don't even have to tithe on. And you're not providing for your own parents. That's shameful. What are you doing? At face value, these three commands don't have much in common. But all three of these are represented in Jacob's life. The first one, honor your father and your mother, that your days will be lengthened in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, as we talk about Jacob, we're also, we have to talk about Esau. Because, one, they're, they're twins. And Jacob's story is linked to Esau. You can't get away from it. Esau, it says in Genesis 25, despised his birthright. Esau came out first, so he was given the the status, the title of Behor, the firstborn. And it was the job of the firstborn to carry the family culture. That you were the standard bearer for the family. Esau did not seem to care for that very much. The Midrash discusses that he would pretend at times to be interested in God. And the rabbis will discuss whether it's true or not. It's an interesting conversation that they say Esau would ask his father these really complex questions about tithes or about offerings. And what if there's, what if there's straw in the grain offering? How do we weigh it then? He'd ask these really detailed questions, appearing as if he really cared about things, when in reality... It was a show. It was all a show for Isaac just to keep his father going along, and it worked for a while. Still on Esau, Esau was 40 years old, and he married Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, and Basimah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they were a vexation of the spirit to Isaac and to Rebekah. A vexation of the spirit. Uh, They were rebellious, and they were provocative. They did not get along with their father and mother-in-law. And the Midrash specifies here, a lot of that is because, and it's very easy to believe, they were worshiping idols. Isav is called a wild man, and it's discussed how he would uh, kidnap people's wives, and he would live very rebelliously, and he would pretend to be honorable, but then steal. Who you marry is very important. Still on Esau, Rebekah said to Isaac in Genesis 27, I'm disgusted with my life because of the daughters of Het. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Het like these, from the daughters of the land, of what use is life to me? When you hear your own mother say, if my other son takes wives like these, I might as well die. You messed up. That's That's bad. That's really, really bad. Parental approval is very key when it comes to your marriage. And let's say you're estranged from your parents. Let's say your parents are not believers. They're not walking with God. You need to default to your community or to other smart people, people smarter than you, hopefully, and how you make that decision. What social circles are you in, your congregation? Because it's a decision that you're stuck with. It's something you need to deliberate over and take counsel on. Not marry some random women that looked cute and then are going to estrange you from your own parents. When Diane and I were courting and I realized I could marry this woman, I brought in three people who I gave veto power over, uh, one of which was Rabbi Schiller. And I said, if you see anything wrong with uh, our relationship, if you think she's not a good match, then I need you to say something and the entire process will stop and we will address your concern. Because I wasn't going to just listen to everyone, but I needed a few people who I knew were thinking clearly because if you're honest, when you are in a relationship, looking, getting married, you're dumb. 
you're not smart. You're not thinking clearly. You're not intelligent. You're, you're thinking about other things. And you're probably not thinking about this will be the rest of your life. My only regret in that is that I did not expand that circle more. It is certainly not, and we're 15 years down the road, it's certainly not that I took counsel from people during that time. So, did Jacob or Esau honor their parents? Well, when we read this story, Esau was kind of a jerk, and Jacob ran off. So, did they? Well, after Jacob's deception, Esau, it says in Genesis 28, saw the daughters of Canaan displeasing to his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael, his uncle, and took Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, the son of Avraham, the sister of Nebaiot, in addition to his other wives. So he said, okay, these daughters of Canaan, the Hittites, the Hivites, no good. I'm going to get a woman that at least is presentable and someone I can have at family dinner. So he did, albeit a weak form of repentance, it was a, a form of acknowledging his parents' wishes. That's interesting. He ended up realizing his parents were disgusted with him, and he took some corrective action. And that is after Jacob's deception. Which, on the topic of Jacob's deception, Isaac didn't seem that upset about it. It's, it's strange. Rivka says, hey, after the deception, you've got to get out of here. Your brother is going to kill you. And so Jacob is called in, and Isaac calls Jacob, and again, blesses him. And he commanded him and said to him, you shall not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Betuel, your, father, your mother's father, and take yourself from there a wife of the daughters of Levon, your mother's brother. And Jacob listened to his father and his mother and went to Padan Aram. So, in the end, despite Jacob's deception, he did receive a genuine blessing from his father, one that he did not have to trick and put on a costume for. And he obeyed his parents in the spouse he would take. In the end, they did both seem to, in certain ways, honor their parents. But the way they got there was pretty messy. And it's not exactly a path I'd recommend to most people. Command number two. You should not keep in your pouch two different weights. Have an honest weight. What does this have to do with Jacob's journey? When Jacob, we're backing up in the story to the birthright, Jacob said, sell me as of this day your birthright. Esau replied, behold, I'm going to die. So why do I need this birthright? Yaakov said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and he sold sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and a pottage of lentils. And he ate and drank and arose and left. And Esau despised the birthright. Question for everyone. Was this a fair transaction? Was that fair market value for the birthright? Imagine you're you're stranded on Interstate 70, and there is a 105-mile stretch of no gas stations on Interstate 70. It's in Utah. And you're 50 miles, of course it's in Utah. You're 50 miles from the closest town, and you run out of gas. And you're stuck. And you have spouse, kids in the back. You don't really have a lot of water on you. It's 100 degrees outside, 50 miles away, no cars on the road. And then I pull up and I say, hey, I've got a gas can in my car. I can get you some gas. And you go, great. And I say, awesome. That'll be $1,000 a gallon. Is that a fair transaction? Do you need the gas? I mean, if you don't want the gas, then go ahead and buy gas from someone else here who has gas, except you're in the middle of nowhere. That is not a fair transaction. And whether Esau was actually going to die at that moment or not isn't really the point. Honest weights and measures has a lot more to do than, uh, than just gold and grain. 
It's about the fairness of the transactions that you do. It also says in the Torah in Leviticus 25, you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. You shall not oppress or mistreat one another. Honest weights and measures. Don't have one weights for people you like and a different weight for people you don't like. Don't change the weight you use depending on who you're speaking to. If you've traveled abroad, a lot of you might have noticed that in certain countries, you'll pay something called the American tax. Which means if the locals hear you speaking English, especially with an American accent, then that means you have money, give me some. And you will suddenly find yourself paying more than other people. Uh, When my wife and I were in Israel many years ago, it was very handy that I could read the Hebrew price on the menu for things because regularly shopkeepers wanted to charge us quite a bit more than the listed price. We'll also do this in conversation. When we hear someone we don't like say something, well, of course, this person is is evil or he's an idiot or this or that. And so we just use it to further uh, carry along our idea, I don't like this person. But when our friend says something that's inconvenient, we'll, we'll take out that different weight. Oh, Oh, well, that's just an aberration. That's not consistent with his character, so we'll explain it away. And we'll casually do it in business as well. We'll have different weights and measures. And while most of us aren't weighing out grain or meat or something, we'll find different ways we do it depending on what client we like, what client we don't like. The Midrash discusses this, and it says, if the fair market value of a transaction or contract is off by more than one-sixth, the transaction or contract is considered uh, exploitation and may be voided. By those standards, the agreement for Jacob to buy the birthright would have certainly been voided. Continuing along, and he, Isaac, said, uh, with this, uh, regarding the deception. Your brother came with cunning and took your blessing. And he, Esau, said, Is it for this reason that he was named Jacob? For he has deceived me twice. He took my birthrights. And behold, now he's taken my blessing. He took my birthright. Didn't he sell it? Why did he now take it? Because if you get someone on a bad side of a business deal, if you rip them off, you might as well have stolen from them. And even if you get away with it in the moment, they will not see it that way in the future. Do someone bad in business, and they will look at it as theft, which is exactly what Esau does. Jacob didn't steal his birthright from him. He bought it for a bowl of soup and some bread. These kinds of transactions lead to resentment. And in the end, it only built the case more and more for Esau that rightly was he named Yaakov because he's crooked. My heel of a brother. If you strong-arm people and you take advantage of them, you are going to create that in your own life. So Jacob has to leave and he's going to Padanaram to Levon's house. And he has the encounter with, with God and, and the... Uh, angels and the ladder. So God encountered Yaakov on the way, and he said, I'm going to be with you. It's going to be okay. Open question for the group. Can God be angry with you and simultaneously have a loving relationship with you and be working in your life? Absolutely. Thank God. Just because you have an active relationship, just because you pray regularly and you feel like God answers your prayers that does not at all mean that he is okay with all of your conduct. Case in points, Moses. Exodus chapter 4, verse 23. God is charging Moshe to go to Pharaoh. So I say to you, send out my son that he will worship me, but if you refuse to send him out, behold, I'm going to slay your firstborn. The very next verse. Now he was going on the way in an end that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That's abrupt. That is really abrupt. If if Rabbi Schiller and I were having a great conversation, 
we said, oh, okay, cool, I'll, I'll see you next Shabbat or, or something, and then I'm walking out to my car, and all of a sudden, he's shooting at me. Something happened in there that, that we don't fully understand. It's like, hey, I thought we were cool. Did you not want to see me next Shabbat? So this is a really abrupt change. And in and, and that story, there's, there's a whole complex thing, and the rabbis discuss why was why didn't God say something? Why is he just coming out to kill him? It's a whole separate conversation. God can absolutely be working in your life regularly, giving you whether it's dreams and visions, answering your prayer, giving you words, working through your relationships, all kinds of things, and still be furious with something you're doing or something you have done that you have not rectified, that you haven't made right. So was Jacob justified in his deception? And furthermore, was Rebecca justified in her part that she played in the deception? The rabbis are split on this, and a lot of commentators are kind of split on it. Some say yes, others say no, some say sort of, because Rivka was given that prophecy that the older will serve the younger, and, and that basically Yaakov is going to be the one who, who is really the Bechor. And so Rebecca saying that, oh my gosh, Isaac's going to bless the wrong son. I have to do something. Well, you reap what you sow. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Rav Shul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a person sows, this he will also reap. If you plant hemlock or nightshade, you are going to get a harvest of poison. If you plant corn or wheats or tomatoes, you're going to get stuff you can, generally speaking, eat. If you're getting a harvest of poison, look at what you have been planting. So Jacob leaves. He goes to Padan Aram, and he shows up to Levon's house empty-handed because he says later, when he's leaving Levon's house, I cross this Jordan with only my staff, and now I'm leaving his two whole companies. If you were leaving home for an indefinite period of time, you weren't sure how long you'd be gone, you'd, uh, you'd bring something along called money. Most of us would bring our wallet, or ladies, your purse. Surely he didn't leave home with no money. There's an interesting story about how Esau really wanted Jacob dead. And so realizing he couldn't just go do it himself, he dispatched uh, his son to do it for him. And his son, although Esau was his father, really he was growing up in the household of Isaac, and his son couldn't do it. And so Jacob said, fine, fine, you don't have to kill me, uh, just take my money and go. And so that's why Jacob would have shown up empty-handed. Whether it's true or not, regardless, it does seem to kind of fit the story because it doesn't make sense. Why would he show up to Levon's house broke? And certainly, Rebecca, having grown up in that household, knew better than to send him to Levon's house broke. And was Jacob welcome as a guest? Sure. At face value. But Levon exploited him at every turn. How do we figure that? Besides, Jacob says outright, you, you've changed my wages consistently. You've tried to get the upper hand on me every time. You've tried to rip me off every chance you get. He had to work for Rachel for how long? Seven years. Let's put that in U.S. dollars. The average per capita income in the United States is $70,000. Seven years for Rachel and then another seven for Leah, the one he didn't even want. He spent almost a million dollars to acquire those women. That's odd language to use in... 21st century America, that he effectively bought them. but They cost him almost a million dollars. Why on earth would Jacob agree to that? Because Levon saw something that Jacob really, really wanted and knew he could get it out of him. There's an interesting story about when the Soviet Union fell and a lot of companies were moving into Russia or, or former Soviet territories and setting up shop there, and one of which was McDonald's. And so they're training the, the Russians to work in this McDonald's. And so we have these Americans that speak Russian. They're training the new employees, and they're saying, okay, this is what we do, and this is this, this new concept to them called customer service. 
and be polite to the customers and how you take the order. And one of the, one of the Russian workers said, what? Why do we have to be polite? We're the ones with the burgers. Why did Levon have to be polite? He's the one with the daughter that Jacob wanted. And out of that, he was able to leverage two daughters and get 14 years of labor. Well, you reap what you sow. So what happened when it came time for Jacob to marry Rachel? All of you know the story. There's trickery. He swaps out Leah last minute. And then Jacob comes to him, complains. Levon says, it is not done so in our place to give the younger one before the firstborn. Ouch. If you're looking for the text telling you whether Jacob's deception was justified or not, it's right there. It answers our question. The text tells us and spells it out that Jacob is paying for his mistake. All of this was punishment to Jacob for three things. One, paying Esau such a low value for the birthright, taking the blessing and position of the firstborn deceptively, and third, using Isaac's poor eyesight in his trickery. Levon used Jacob's desire for Rachel to manipulate him and then took advantage of Jacob when he could not, where he could not see the veil, substituting the older for the younger. Jacob planted seeds that he did not harvest for seven years or more through not honoring his parents, through dishonest weights and measures. Whenever you find yourself in a position where there's something you really, really want, or maybe even God told you this is, this is what you're going to get, don't ever, ever act in deception or act in a way that dishonors your parents or act in a way that is untrue or false. God is not mocked. And Rivka clearly felt she was justified in what she was doing. She was passionate about it. But here's the thing. It didn't have to happen that way. We often get it in our heads that because that's the way the story goes, and we've read many of these stories hundreds of times, that that's just how it had to happen. But it didn't have to happen that way. A prophecy does not give you the right to act in a way which is not legitimate. Take another example in Scripture in the book of Esther when Mordecai is telling Esther, if you don't rise up and say something to the king, if you don't do something about this, deliverance for the Jews will arise from somewhere else, but you and your father's house will perish. And Esther might have said, what do you mean somewhere else? What are you talking about? Mordecai probably didn't have this clear thought out plan for a plan B. But he knew God's going to save us and your only decision now is do you want to be part of that story or not? He didn't exactly have this detailed plan laid out for how else it could go, but he knew it could go differently. And when we're wrestling with these kinds of things, like Jacob and Rebecca were with who gets the birthright, who gets the blessing, who's going to be the firstborn, the whore, we're often wrestling with physical problems. And when we spend all of our energy wrestling with physical problems, we're not going to hold up because we forget these are ultimately spiritual issues. These are not really physical problems. When you wrestle with it spiritually, then you are holding to your namesake of Israel. When you wrestle with it physically, you are doing what Jacob did before he got his new name. There's one more commandment to talk about. The mother bird. If a bird's nest chances before you on the road and you find eggs in the nest with the mother bird, you can't take them both. Shoo the mother bird away and take the eggs. But do not take the mother upon the children. This is considered one of the lightest commandments in the Torah, which begs the question, why on earth is long life attached to this? Now, most likely... Most of you have fulfilled this mitzvah without having to do anything because most of you are never coming upon birds' nests trying to take the bird and the eggs. 
What's the purpose to it? And the rabbis don't have a consensus on this, nor do the sages or Midrash or anywhere. They'll discuss why do we have this mitzvah, what does it mean, and, and they'll toss around ideas. Well, maybe it's saying it's especially onerous to take uh, two generations and kill them simultaneously, or, or, uh, or maybe it's uh, a problem to basically, regardless of the species, to kill a mother's young in front of her so we don't do that. But there's all this back and forth, and there's no clear consensus. Why does this law exist? And furthermore, if I just excused everyone right now and said, go outside and go catch a bird, could you? It's not easy. I mean, when you hunt birds, there's a special kind of shell that you use. It's not just a normal bullet because birds are usually, generally speaking, small and fast, and they they fly and they'll do chaotic flight patterns and so we don't want just one bullet that moves really fast. We want a bunch of bullets to scatter because maybe one of them is going to get the bird. Birds are difficult to catch. They'll fly away unless they are protecting their young. Imagine you're in a home invasion, and it's you alone at home, and all of a sudden a group of armed robbers are trying to break in. Most people... If you're not trained in combat, your best chance of survival is to get out of there because all of your stuff can be replaced. Most likely insurance will pay for it anyways. But all the money in the world won't bring you back from the dead. So get out of there. So you can run away. You can fly away like the bird. What if you've got 11 children at home with you? Your power of flight has been taken from you. God tells us in the law of the mother bird, do not leverage parenthood against someone. Do not abuse that relationship. For children, do not take advantage of your parents. Do not abuse the relationship that you have with them because they love you and most parents, the overwhelming majority, would lay down their life to protect their children. When Jacob left Lavans and he was preparing to meet Esau, what did he do? Jacob said in Genesis 32, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your land and to your birthplace and I will do good to you. I have become small from all the kindnesses and from all the truth that you have rendered your servant. For with my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Now deliver me from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Isaac, for I am afraid of him, lest he come and strike me, a mother with children. Jacob's main defense, run away, which is what he did the first time with Esau, had been removed because he was not alone anymore. He was stuck because he had two camps. Besides the livestock and any other servants he had, he had, at a minimum, two wives, each with their handmaidens and a whole basket of kids. So is this a loose analogy in themes that just happened to rhyme? Because you might be looking at it and say, so what? It's... An interesting kind of concept or idea, but you're pulling at threads. And I might agree with you if it weren't for one thing. The commandment, the mitzvah in Deuteronomy 22, verse 6, you shall not take a mother upon the young. Ha'em el habanim. Genesis 32. Now deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I'm afraid of him, lest he come and strike me, and strike a mother with children. Em al banim. It's the same phrase... And this is the only place in the entire Torah that phrase exists. Nowhere else does it exist. M. Aldanim, mother upon the children. And what's interesting here, who is in the position to fulfill this mitzvah? Isaac, or excuse me, Yaakov or Esau? Jacob or Esau? Esau. And this example, Jacob is in the position of the mother bird. 
That is a very strong connection. The only two places in the entire Torah that phrase exists is there. In the entire Bible, that phrase does appear in one other place. Isaiah chapter 10. I'll begin in verse 12. And tell me if you hear a theme for what we've been discussing. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way and the multitude of your mighty men. Therefore, tumult shall rise among your people and all your fortresses shall be plundered as Shalman plundered Bet Arbel in the days of battle. A mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Batel. That is the only other place in the entire Tanakh that that phrase exists. Discussing, you are going to reap what you sow. What do you trust in? Your band of men or God? So Jacob comes to Esau after he's wrestled with God. And we'll get to that, even though it happened before, because this is ultimately Jacob's story, not Esau. And they make amends. And that's really significant, by the way, because when you're reading Genesis, if you're reading this book for the first time, you might not know what Esau's going to do. He swore he was going to kill Jacob. And Jacob did him bad several times. But we see reconciliation happen here. We see forgiveness. And that tells us, hey, there is hope that two people can go from hating each other with one wanting to kill the other, and they can reconcile. So Esau forgives him, and they essentially make up. Jacob doesn't really seem to trust him. And we never really hear from Esau again after this. But Esau fulfilled the law of the mother bird. He did not take the mother upon the children. He did not take advantage of Jacob here. Does he get a blessing? Yes. We fast forward a few verses, or excuse me, a few chapters, and what do we find? All of Genesis 36. Toldot Esau. These are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. Verse 9. And these are the generations of Esau, the progenitor of Edom. On Mount Seir, verse 31. And these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. We're given Esau's generations, his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, captains, chiefs, and kings. For doing that, for fulfilling that mitzvah, he did not just get longevity for himself. He got a national longevity for fulfilling what the rabbis call the least of the commandments. Yeshua said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And he's quoting Psalm 37 when he said that. A commentary that's been, been popularized recently on, on meekness, and what does that word actually mean? Because growing up, I didn't understand. Meekness, I thought, meant you had really narrow shoulders and you were kind of a pushover. But no, that's not what meekness means. And there's a commentary that specifies meekness could be equated to having a sword, but you choose to keep it sheathed. You have the ability to do violence, but you choose not to. Which is exactly what Esau did there. He demonstrated towards his brother, who he had prior desired to kill. And he probably set out with 400 men to do just that. He didn't have 400 guys bringing flowers. I'll tell you that right now. I wasn't there, but they were going there to do violence. And he instead demonstrated meekness. Which is interesting because Esau is called a man of evil in in almost all of the commentaries. He is, and, and God says, Jacob, have I loved Esau? Have I hated? But Esau here showed that even someone who consistently seems to do the wrong thing can redeem themselves. And if Esau had chosen a different path there, 
that story would have gone very differently. But this isn't really Esau's story, it's Jacob's. So we're going to get back to Jacob. Esau was angry at a man when he met Jacob who no longer really existed. Because that wasn't really Jacob who met Esau. It was him physically, sure. But he wasn't Yaakov anymore. He wasn't crooked. He was Israel. It says in Genesis 32, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. Show of hands, who in here has, say, for more than one year, trained in martial arts? Okay, what's the longest you've ever been in a fight? In any kind of sparring match or rolling in jiu-jitsu, what's the longest you've ever done that for? A couple minutes? One of the longest fight scenes ever filmed in a, in a one-shot in a film, as in there were no stops or cuts or anything, but it's a hand-to-hand combat fight scene, lasted about four minutes. That's a long time. The, the actor in that is much more an accomplished martial artist than an actor. And by the end of that four minutes, he is noticeably winded. Jacob wrestled with God all night. And at the end, God was saying, let, let go of me. God had to ask to be let go of. If you are trying to handle your physical problems by wrestling with them directly, you are not going to hold up. You are going to be winded in just a few minutes. When you wrestle with God, when you remember you're not warring against flesh and blood, then you will be able to wrestle all night. And you will be able to go until God is willing to give you that blessing. So God says, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, ah, no. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, because you have commanding power with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Now, Yaakov, Jacob really needed to hear that because he's about to go meet Esau, and he was not expecting to have this all-night wrestling match and being told, you've already prevailed. Remember what Yaakov means from a kev, crooked, bent heel, that part of your body that, that curves, it's your heel, it's not straight. That name his mom never really liked. What did God name him? Israel, because Jacob had wrestled with God. But remember, in Hebrew, there are no vowel points. We put those in ourselves. Israel wrestles with God. could also be Yashar-el, straight with God. He wrestled with God all night. He had learned from those mistakes, and the man who was before crooked became straight with God. The only way Jacob lasted so long in that fight is because God let him last that long. Otherwise, there is no way, I don't care if you are the best athlete on earth, you are not going to last all night in a wrestling match. But Yaakov refused to let go. And God let him have that strength because Jacob realized this was no longer a physical battle. This was a spiritual battle. And he was not going to win this by running away. He was not going to win it with deception or with trickery. But he was going to win it by being straight with God. And we see Jacob, now Israel, conducting himself like the son of God. Where he is willing to wrestle with the tough things where he's not shirking away. In Hebrews, it says, In the days of his humanity, he offered up both prayers and pleas with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his devout behavior. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Seek God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. If you try to seek all these other things first, you will never find righteousness. Learn from Jacob's mistakes. And we who are crooked can become straight with God. 
Don't wrestle with the problem, which is the mistake that Jacob made early on. It's the mistake Rivka made and how she guided her son. Don't wrestle with that problem because you don't have the energy. Wrestle with God. It's your name. It's okay. He will give you the strength to see it through. He doesn't call us to be his slaves. He calls us to wrestle with him. Only he can give you that name that's written in heaven. He changed Yaakov's name. Would the music team please come up? If you feel like you have the wrong name, that the life you're living isn't the one that you're supposed to be, if you feel like there's something missing, if you feel like you've been disconnected from God, remember, he does not call you to be crooked. But even someone who is literally named crooked, he can do wonderful things with. He can make you straight with God. Would you join with me in prayer? And would you please stand? Avinu Shavat Shemayim, our Father in heaven, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We thank you for your word that you give us. We thank you for the stories that you give us of our forefathers. Lord, we thank you for the perfect example of your son, Yeshua, that we can see him and that all the scriptures testify about him, Lord. I ask that you would make each of us sons and daughters, that we, Lord, would make you, our Father in heaven, proud, that you lovingly call us sons. Do not call us your slaves, call us your sons. Lord, I ask that you would guide us with your word and your spirit, that we would honor you, our Father in heaven, that we would deal with just weights and just measures. And even in the things that seem small, something as small as sending away a mother bird, we would make you proud in the things that we do and that we would lovingly carry out your word and your commandments with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, and with all of our resources for all the days of our life that we would do this by your strength and not our own. Lord, we pray to you by the name and the merit of your son, Yeshua, and that we have confidence that our prayers are heard. Amen. Shabbat shalom.